0: again and welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast and it's Dave with you today and I'm excited to invite uh, Brian Hebert to the show for an interview and Brian is the author of Blue Notes and Sad Chords, a Color Coded Harmony in the Beatles 27 number one hits. So welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast Brian. Hey thanks Dave thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you because, uh, as you know, I'm a music theorist, and uh, you have a good music background as well, and I'm always interested in books that look at the Beatles from a musical perspective, and so I'm curious if you could start by telling us a little bit about your own background and what made you write this book.
1: Well, I guess it all starts back on a Sunday night in February 1964. I was eight years old, and My parents let me watch The Ed Sullivan Show, and of course, like millions, it it changed our lives. I went out and got a guitar the next month. Wow! (laughs) You know, who who had ever heard music like that or seen an act like that? So I've basically been playing music all my life and gone through a variety of, uh, gone down different lanes, playing blues and some classical music and a lot of Celtic music and and that, but I always come back to the Beatles and uh, I'd say about 15 years ago I, I took a pilgrimage to Liverpool and I bought a fake book and it had all the chords uh, the original keys, which is great and you actually couldn't get the book in the United States or Canada at the time and I brought it home and I started playing all the songs again and remembering everything and it, I just was uh, swept away with some great audio nostalgic memories and uh, it, it sort of started there and then I would say about 10 years ago I started get, you know, getting the idea of like what really made the Beatles so incredibly special? And a lot of people will say that they were good looking and charming and everything. but I was you know what in the music really made them special? So I really thought about it a lot and I, I, I landed on three essential points. And one was performance energy, another was uh, vocal arrangements and in particular harmony, which is really one of my favorite parts of their wonderful music. And then the third thing was song quality. Mm-hmm. So then about five years ago, I took it upon myself to to create these sort of color-coded song maps, I called them, that you could follow along and read the lyrics and see who was singing. I would make John's voice red, Paul's blue, and when they harmonized, I'd make it purple. And the idea is you'd follow along, looking at the song map while you were listening, and you'd get this sort of heightened sense of uh, what was going on with the Beatles' harmony. So it sto- it sort of started that way. Uh, what what books
0: you know? As I said, there's and you you actually mentioned this too. There are so many books about the Beatles and quite a few about their music too. Uh, there's very detailed analyses from a formal view. There's kind of fan types of, of, of interpretations of oh this is this is what this song means to me and things like that. So I'm curious also what uh, if you had to ask, say what books influenced you most in writing this one or uh, in terms of getting your Beatle knowledge together? What were kind of your influential books?
1: Well, um, I've sort of, I guess, read most of them. I have some music theory background. I took music theory in college and I've been playing all my life. And uh, I, you know, I've found myself teaching people that don't really know music theory or could read music and things like that, some basic stuff. So that's that's one scene in it. But I've Read pretty much all of the classics, Walter Everett and Alan Pollack's stuff, and uh, you know, there's just tons of them out there now. And there's the uh, the deconstruction work that's yeah. going on, and the, some of that stuff's just just wonderful. So I read it, and then I just go, "This is, you know, this somewhat inaccessible to a regular fan," mm-hmm. and so. I wanted to try and and encapsulate these things and in particular the harmony and just teach people just enough little bit about chords and what harmony is, you know, two notes together, John and Paul together or or the three part harmony like in this boy and just give them just a little bit through sort of a fun and, and visually colorful way. And so they could uh, they could actually appreciate it and and some people you know the the jury's out some people say that looking at a, a beam of light through a prism and understanding how it splits into color enhances your appreciation of light so and some people don't want to know these things you know <laughs> I, I watch a lot of movies and you know I don't want to know about the camera angle I want to just get lost in the Movie, but music's another thing for me. So I really like to, you know, I really want to know what's going on underneath. And so, um, it's a combination of reading all these things. And, and O'Grady's another one that's a great book, and 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 in the appendix of my book, I list a few of the other sources I've looked at. But once again, to sort of summarize, I I really want to do. To, to simplify a lot of these basic notions about you know what's a chord it's just three notes stacked up you know that's all you have to worry about and just to sort of do it like that so mm-hmm. that that was one of my main goals was sort of musicology for the masses if you will
0: mm-hmm. i like that and that's i know it's uh, become kind of a popular thing now even in music theory in my own field where we're trying to take what we do in the Classroom in the academy, and go out and try to explain it to people who may not have all the technical baggage. And and you know, a lot of, a lot of times the concepts are not that complicated, but uh, and that's why it's great if you can explain them in a clear way. And especially the fact that you chose to use uh, one the album the I believe it was the top selling album of the 2000s. Uh, use use that's your basis for this book and I'm wondering how you decided to choose that because all these other books we've mentioned like Everett's and you know they go through the entire catalog but you chose just the number one hits so how did you decide to to analyze one
1: well yeah that's a that's a good call because I I was looking at it and it, it took me a long time to do this stuff I'm a programmer and I actually wrote a customized markup language and all these things to generate the song maps. And so I didn't really have the runway to do all 200 and you know, 10, 12 or whatever it is. And yeah. so, and I also didn't want it to be exhaustive in that way. I was trying to really get to an essence and there is some danger in just using the 27 number one hits, you know, the things that hit the top of the chart, either in, in the U S or the UK. But, uh, you know, and the book is still 250 pages, so God <laughs> yeah. help us, I don't know. And I'm <laughs> I'm actually, uh, I'm probably thinking about another book where these things, I I, I created these things called chord palettes mm-hmm. that are, they're not quite song maps, but they, they use the idea of an artist's palette, and I made a very simple idea of which, you know, chords were used in a song. And I still might do a, a volume of that uh, for all songs, but mm-hmm. essentially, I, I just really wanted to get to the... The, the essence, and I thought if I just picked the 27 number ones, you know, that would be okay. Because at, at one point, I went through and did sort of sketches, if you will, of colored song maps for all 212. And it was Ooh. just, it was just <laughs> overwhelming. You yeah. know, it took me several months and you have to listen to them 10 times each and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> so I thought, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't be here today if I tried all 212. So,
0: No, or you'd have about three volumes of uh, <laughs> books and be still working on it. So, yeah, and it's it's good that you chose the, you know, they're all good songs, obviously. And you, we started out the episode today listening to A Hard Day's Night, which is one of those number one hits. And... What is it about that song particularly that attracts you, or that you find so interesting?
1: Well, so that that's a great question, and that that leads me to sort of describe where the title of the book comes from. Yeah. So, as I said, I created these chord palettes. You know, I had started with these three ideas: performance energy, uh, vocal harmony, and song structure. You know, song quality, and I decided not to try and show performance energy in any way. I suppose you could if you had a you know, some animated thing and the colors would get brighter. But that that was too busy. Yeah. And I, I knew I wanted to do harmony. So I, I was mostly done with the harmony work, and I had been listening and listening. And then I just realized something that was just, it's always been there right in front of us, that there's an incredible amount of contrast in between the different sections of so many Beatles songs. And so A Hard Day's Night is a classic example. If you listen to John singing that rocker bluesy verse, you know, you just want to get up and dance or something, you know, and mm-hmm. that's that's just not really a pop song. The verse is a rock and roll song. But then he hands it over to Paul in the bridge and Paul sings. And then it's a very emotional pop song. And so the the first, uh, as you know, being a music theorist, the first part, rock and roll, it's just got the one, four and the five chord that the three chords you have to know. And there's a flat seven in there to make yep. everything easy. <laughs> but then when he hands it over to Paul, there's minor chords that show up. Mm -hmm. And so I created these chord palettes. I made the, the three chords of rock and roll, the one, four, and the five bright colors. I made them red, orange, and yellow. But then for the two, the three, and the six, the darker minor chords, I made those darker. And then... In these chord palettes, you can see a list of just, not the chord progression, just like a simple, like a swatch almost for a song. And you can absolutely see that in so many songs, like A Hard Day's Night is a classic example, there's this huge contrast. The verse is blue notes. It's rock and roll, but the bridge is sad chords. And so many of these songs are like that. And in particular, in the early part of the Beatles, the contrast was was very marked. The other songs like that, uh, say in 1964, I feel finds another song like that. Can't buy me love is a classic. Mm-hmm. You know, the verse is a is one of the few sort of twelve bar blues patterns you'll hear. And then, but but when he goes into the, the bridge of the chorus, it becomes a pop song and he throws some minor chords in there. So that's where the title of the book came from, Blue Notes and Sad Chords. And A Hard Day's Night is, besides just being a great song, that's like, uh, uh, you know, that's sort of the poster child for, for a Blue Notes and Sad Chords song that, that shows all of this Beatles contrast. And there's other kinds of contrast, too. Um, if you take something like Run for Your Life um, or or You Can't Do That... Um, those there's very bluesy or, or darker verses, but when they go into the bridge, it, you know it's not sad. It's almost like mad. You could call those blue, you know, blue notes and mad chords or something. <laughs> but and the contrast is just it's all over. So when you really start to listen to them and think about that and go through their whole catalog, you notice so much contrast. And then by extension, if you go out and listen to all the other artists at the day. You know, of the day you won't really hear that kind of contrast. You'll hear it in some in some artists. But for example, the Rolling Stones had, you know, a, a much smaller palette, if you will, like that. They would tend to make bluesy songs and it wouldn't have sounded cool if they started to throw all these, <laughs> you know, heavily minor emotional chords, you know, four chord bridges in their songs. It just wasn't their style. Mm-hmm. But it's clearly a, a very important part of the Beatles, and it's also a very important part of just Western music. You know, if you look at all concertos and sonatas and everything, I mean, they're constantly um, contrasting with main themes and then playing slower, darker things and then brightening things up again. So the Beatles really, really had that in their music, and they it just came naturally to them. I don't think it was really conscious you know they just knew how to do it just sitting on a bus and writing she loves you or whatever
0: (laughs) (laughs) with the the blues particularly we think of the rolling stones as the blues band and the beatles blues influence sometimes gets downplayed or sometimes you, you look more at the the contrasting parts like you were talking about do you find that and of course, of course the blues is there and day tripper and uh they come together and it's it's all there but we tend like i say we tend not to view the beatles that way do you did that kind of ebb and flow you know, through these 27 songs the blues influence or did you really find it was a consistent thing throughout all these songs
1: so um, that's a that's a great question. I think you'll see that the, the particular co- type of contrast, which is just one of many, if you really listen to the Beatles, the blue notes and sad chords, that's really that happens sort of in the first half of their catalog, much more so like in 64, when they were really at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. And another part about that is, uh, you know, a rocker verse and a, and an emotional bridge. It also highlights the collaboration between John and Paul. They very frequently would, would, you know, sort of hand off to the other guy and help him work the bridge out. So it's really an essential part of their early thing when they were really highly collaborative. And then that sort of fades away. And and it's the same with vocal harmony. So, uh, like, for a song like I Feel Fine has all the earmarks of, uh, you know, this sort of jet engine of of harmony Mm -hmm. with... with a a bluesy verse and a great guitar riff, but then, you know, three part harmony and a very emotional bridge and etc. So you really don't find that particular footprint as you move, you know, past 66 and 67, really, you know, they started to be more independent, you know, and, and in a sense, part of what my those those three elements, performance, energy, uh, vocal, uh, you know, harmony, and, and, and song structure, a lot of what, I was coming up with was you know what is the, what created Beatlemania, and mm. so th- the thing I really noticed is this blue notes and sad chords, this essential thing about Beatlemania. It faded and it really changed over time. And in fact, to to highlight that, there's a, some spots in the book where I show all the song maps sort of reduced and over time. And as I said before, when John and Paul are singing together, it's purple. It's you see a lot more purple in the first half of the you know, Beatles catalog than you do in the end. Mm-hmm. You go through this, you know, we, you have Love Me Do, which is very purple, starts off in this full-throated, very broad, English-sounding harmony. You have She Loves You, From Me To You, you know, all the Beatlemania stuff, very tons of purple. And then then there's a, it sort of fades away, and then there's a John period that's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's sort of dominant, uh, Hard Day's Night, for, for maybe a year or so, and then halfway through, Paul McCartney basically almost takes over. Yeah. And and so many of the songs are just blue in the end, you know, in the second <laughs> half. John has only a couple, and then George has something, and Ringo has a yellow submarine. So I'm sort of ranting <laughs> here. But uh, yeah. so the, the whole blues thing, and of course, uh, when, when you really listen to really early Beatles stuff, you know, one after 909 or yeah. all their covers, they really were rock and rollers. Mm-hmm. But then they, you know, they they injected a lot of pop into it. And I think uh, if you heard the Escher demo tapes that just came out yep. in the new White Album and you hear some of that raw stuff, you can hear, I believe, that George Martin sort of popped them up a little bit. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. popped up the music, because if you hear just back in the USSR, it just – the way they're playing the chords, it just sounds like a rocker. You know, it's still a rocker, but I think George Martin and and work with the with the lads they changed a lot of that stuff. So.
0: Yes, definitely. And so, you, if you're looking at when they were more much more of a group in those early days, and then I like the uh, your your song map uh, for Long and Winding Road, which has no Beatles singing on it except Paul. Uh, uh, that makes have I know, the question comes up to me. What, what would you say is the benefit of studying the vocals versus more of the you know, other technical kinds of things like some oth- other authors have done? Because I don't know of another book that focuses on the vocals as much as yours does. So uh, how did that come about, or how did you decide that the vocals were really what you wanted to focus on in your maps? And then you can also tell us a little bit more about how they work.
1: So i guess uh it goes back to that sort of second main point when i was trying to come up with what are the essential three musical elements that created beatlemania one of them for me was and it's a combination really but it's this it's their vocal harmony but it's coming through like a jet engine there there is uh, paul mccartney had sort of a little richard engine behind them in the early days and uh and John Lennon had uh, like a Smokey Robinson one. And when they got together and, you know, they really amped it up that, you know, it's not since the Andrew sisters that you've ever heard jet engine harmony blasted out with that much energy, really. <laughs> and so the, the harmony is something and, you know, and as a musician, I just love harmony and I mm-hmm. love studying harmony. And, you know, I wish I had time to write a book on just just the harmonic lines and all two hundred and twelve <laughs> songs. <laughs> yeah. But I know it, so the the harmony is for me, you know, just one of these things that happens, you know, when you're listening to someone singing, just and then they sing around or something, you know, or some nice thing and they're harmonizing. Something very special happens. A certain kind of energy hits humans, and you know, you sort of vibrate along with the people singing. So, mm-hmm. you know that 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 essentially is really what drove me, that's what started it all off, is I just wanted to capture the harmony and I wanted to present it in a form that the average fan could understand with these colors and general ideas, I said before, um, is as you're listening to the music, you follow along in these song maps and the song maps have, they're broken into sections. Um, Originally, I was gonna use all the, the lyrics and I originally reached out to Sony ATV um, when I started about six years ago, and they said, yes, we'll grant you the rights to the songs. It's a per song fee basis. Mm-hmm. And, and so I set about my merry way and went on my journey. <laughs> and three years later, I said, you know, I just wanted to check before I went to publish. And and they had since handed off their music publishing to Hal Leonard, you know, oh. who makes all these books. Yep. And Hal Leonard said, sorry, we changed our mind. You can't <laughs> use the lyrics. Oh, that's so terrible. I was just Ugh. devastated, but yeah. uh, I had a plan B. And so the song maps now, they don't have the full lyrics, which would be easier to follow um, looking at the songs, but they have song parts, you know, it'll have an intro, it'll have a verse, a bridge, a break, and then an outro. And you can still sort of follow them. And yeah. they have... They have a minute and second ticks, so you know the idea is you could be watching, you know, you could be listening with headphones, looking at some device that allows you to count things off, and you can stop things. And I throw instruments in a little bit once in a while, but the the, the essential thing is still to capture the the vocals. And in particular, one one thing you'll see is that uh, unlike a lot of other bands, they they harmonize. They tended to sing a lot of unison say, at the beginning of a line Mm. and finish it in harmony, or they'd sing an entire line in unison, and then the next line would be in harmony. And then what's really great, you'll notice things like they actually, uh, you know, it seemed like they they would really kick in in harmony sometimes when they would change into these emotional chords. Yeah, Like if you hear, I want to hold your hand. You know, there's part in unison, but when they when they actually go, I want to hold your hand, and the are multisyllable, and they come down. They really, they really turn it on. They really belt into this beautiful two-part descending harmony, and and you also see that in bridges. So when you sort of superimpose the the idea of this uh, these song maps and their harmony against the chord palettes, like a real progression. You can actually see that in the bridges, very often, they really goose up the harmony or mm. they really goose it up when they hit, a, you know, a happy to sad chord change or vice versa. So mm-hmm. if you really want to get into the details, you can notice things like that.
0: It's, again, it comes back to contrast and that it keeps their songs interesting instead of just being a straight 12-bar blues. It's the vocal arrangements and these br- contrasting bridges or middle eights. It really makes the songs come to life and have their own unique sound, I think, and that's, I think, a lot of what you're pointing out with the, particularly the stress on the vocals, and along with that, you also share a lot of your own thoughts about the songs, and you, you're, you'll have the song listed, then you give the technical details and show your vocal maps, and then you have a personal note for all of them, too, and so you said you grew up, you were eight years old when you saw Ed
1: Sullivan, was that... Yep, I yes. was eight years old okay. in February 1964, and yeah. and then I got a, got a guitar, and uh, and then I got an electric guitar, and so I, I wanted to, uh, I really wanted this, and it was probably more appropriate when I had all the lyrics, but I really wanted this to be a, a book for fans, mm-hmm. so that they could follow it, and I didn't want to just make it just about musical analysis, so I wanted to make it a little bit real, you know, and, and as I say in the book, it's sort of like, when Marcel Proust takes a bite of that cookie and he's transported back you know right, right. over his life um, I you know I wanted to impart some of that so when you hear these songs you hear them in a slightly newer way and it sort of takes you back and that's why I included charting information i would say what song the beatles uh, knocked out of number 1 you know <laughs> yep. it might be a stone song or simon and garfunkel or who came after them you know mm-hmm. who knocked out their number 1 maybe it was the fifth dimension or something and then all these little sort of vignettes about what's it like to be a, you know, a young guitar player growing up in the 60s, you know, loving the Beatles and, and you know, just the, the 60s and all the crazy stuff that happened. <laughs> or else I sort of, uh, I, I, I opine about what I think uh, are some of the qualities about the, the Beatles and their musicianship or their, their wonderful voices, you know, like John, especially in the beginning, just had these amazingly soulful, yeah. you know, those laden uh, oos and ahs and hm's and he did that also much more in, in the early uh, in the early phase. And so I, I added twenty seven little vignettes, and they sort of keep people reading. And in fact, if you get sick of reading about technical stuff, and and I do this sometimes, I go back in the book and I just read those little parts, and it sort of takes me back to the sixties.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I mean that's a, a you know something when I go out and do talks to public libraries a colleague and I just did that and he and I are the same age We're second-generation fans and uh, we always come across people who are first-generation fans and I love to talk to them and and hear the experiences of what it was like when the Beatles were really there and all a unit Uh, and you you get the sense of what it was like and I think that's uh, giving that personal touch helps to uh, make things a little bit more real uh, to some extent too and I don't know if it's also part of your other training or background, but you have some kind of unusual little things towards the end of the book as well. Like, uh, you call them sidebars. And one of them I did have fun with last night the out of phase stereo, or what you call oops, uh, where you take one of the songs from, well, you could take any song, but at least from the one album here, and then put it onto Audacity, is what I did. So, uh, recording program and then split things so you can hear the stereo in the two parts so tell us a little bit about that process and what it helped you discover
1: yeah so that's a great thing i mean you could actually do this years ago you could do oops years ago if you just sort of uh re- rewire your speakers a certain way i can't think offhand how you do it but essentially you you reverse it and what happens is it cancels out the middle of the stereo image so you see you you hear you know, you can, synesthetically you see it, uh, but you can hear these things on, on the side of the recording that you couldn't hear before. So it's very much like, say, you found some old photograph. And you brought it to some expert, and they were able to sort of restore a little bit. And you could see details in it, you know, from the past or something, if you want to think about it romantically, <laughs> um, uh, you know, that, uh, that you couldn't hear before. So one of the examples I used is I took I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is, is a great thing to do oops on. As you said, you just put it into Audacity, and you, you use effects, and you just basically choose this thing that says Remove Center, and it does that. And then you just split the two tracks. Mm-hmm. And then you just listen to one or the other. And and what you can hear when you do that uh, with I Want to Hold Your Hand is you can hear very uh, detailed little sparkly licks that George Harrison's playing throughout the song. And, and at the end, you hear these great little strummed arpeggios and everything. But what I was particularly interested in, in using it for is is trying to figure out what kind of a B chord was in uh, I want yeah. to the end.
0: <laughs> The eternal dilemma because, here. Is it B minor or B
1: major? Right. So, I mean, if you look at a lot of fake books, I mean, if you're just sitting around strumming by yourself and you play the guitar and, you know, we, we tend to, we're, we gravitate towards do, re, mi and what's diatonic. So mm-hmm. that's an unusual chord progression. Uh, it's a little bit unusual it's actually the same part as pachelbel's canon or streets of london or a bunch of other things but it's a you know it's a it's a it's a one five six three and that's you know john and paul talked about they were eyeball to eyeball at the piano in jane asher's basement in london in 1963 and they came up with that chord and they said that's it but uh (laughs) Some people, uh, like serious musicologists, will say that it's a seventh. If you look at it's a it's a B uh, seventh, which would be quite unusual in the key of G because that takes one of the main main notes and and goose's it up, and our yeah. ears go. You know, even a cat will sometimes you know <laughs> if it hears something like that. You know, I, I play these things. Cats and dogs actually look up and go, "What the, what the heck is that?" So. And so, but if you look at fake books, like uh, if you look at, for example, at Hal Leonard's fake book, I believe they they probably say it's a B minor. It's yeah. and it sounds like a B minor for me when I'm doing it because I like diatonic things. Okay. I'm drawn to them, but uh, mo- most of the musicology folks will actually say it's a it's a B seventh or it's uh, something else. So what I did is I I oopsed it and I uh, and I, I I listened very carefully when when you can hear them hit the B, and you can actually hear George hit that raised third Mm. in in the B. So it's, you know, I'm hearing a B major now, but it's so buried in the mix, you don't really notice it. Then the other thing I did, you know, if you really want to be psycho, is I looked at the uh, Ed Sullivan show, and I slowed it down, and I zoomed in on their hands, on John and Paul's hands, and they're playing a bar chord, you know, up on the seventh fret. Mm -hmm. It's a B, and you can see that that middle finger's down, you know, that's hitting the third, and if they were playing a seventh, you know, they they were possibly playing a seventh, but it would probably look a little bit differently. So my Sherlock Holmes work uh, came back that it, it's, it's in a sense, a, a B major. Um, I, didn't, I didn't hear any flat sevens in there, but I think some other people do. So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but uh, you can get pretty carried away if you just want to figure out what one chord is, that's for sure. Yes, I'm
0: going to have to try that with the Hard Day's Night opening chord. I, I didn't do that one, but I don't know if I would... If it would help that much, because it's probably all together. I don't know what. Do you remember anything from that? Good. Good luck with
1: that. Quote. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure many, I just, uh, many have tried. I,
1: I had one of my musical mentors, John McGann. Uh, may he rest in peace. A great uh, professor at uh, Berkeley and a, a musical mentor and a sort of a musical lighthouse for me. And he he showed me how to play it. We play four string. You know, we play octave mandolins and bazookis and tenor <laughs> guitars. And he showed me how to play it on that you know, it's kind of a, it's got some nice stuff in there and Mm. suspended stuff. And there's, there's a million things. So it's really not one chord. I'd say it's like 10
2: chords.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Well, you also have a lot about color, which you've already mentioned all of your color, uh, your maps and the way you've laid out the vocals and the different parts and and chords and things. Uh, Is color a particular interest of yours? Because you also have a little section on synesthesia, which is something that, the, uh, in my world with, uh, classical music, the French composer Olivier Messian was known for having, or being able to hear colors and, uh, kind of view things in his music that way. Is that a particular interest of yours or how did you decide to Yes. Well, that? I,
1: I put a, I put a sidebar in the, in the book about it, synesthesia. And, and in fact, uh, uh, you know, I talk about it. And if you look it up, and by the way, there's a great book I would plug. It's called The Man Who Tasted Shapes. And the mm. cover alone is worth it. But it's a wonderful book. And, um, you know, you you understand what certain expressions like there aren't enough points on the chicken yet you know, <laughs> when you're cooking it. But so a lot of people actually have synesthesia. Um, the, the the reason that what I did with these colors i i, I designed these uh, colored systems very specifically with 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 a goal in mind i i wanted to in the song maps show harmony showing individual beatles voices as primary colors and then when they mix their voices as secondary you know red and blue is purple um but uh, uh other synesthetes will will say that it it has to be involuntary so what i did was not really synesthesia and the same with the cord palettes i chose colors i chose you know Red, orange, and yellow for the bright, happy, positive major chords. So uh, technically, that's not synesthesia. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if you look at uh, you know some composers that you know they hook up light machines to their yeah, you know, yeah. to their organs. A guy a Prometheus, uh, a composer. It's actually it escapes my mind right now. I should know it, but uh, and so uh, a lot of people uh, over the over the years have studied the connection between. Between color and sound, Isaac Newton did, um, Goethe Goethe did, Mm -hmm. um, but once again, those were sort of contrived, you know, an engineering way, and not necessarily uh, synesthesia. But one thing I I pose a question in the book is that, uh, you know, while my book is not synesthetic in its in its origin, it's sort of a synesthetic type of thing. And if a child was, you know, were listening to the Beatles at a certain time in their early life. And looking at my song maps, they could develop that as a synesthesia. So Ooh. it's kind of a it's kind of a weird uh, a full circle thing, uh, something like that. That's pretty
0: interesting. Uh, was that something, or what, if you had to say what were the most surprising things that you found in writing the book and analyzing the music? Uh, what were some of your biggest takeaways apart from your three main points of the book itself? But just the personal things that you found particularly <laughs> well, surprising. Well,
1: one thing is you notice that anything associated with legal oh. copyrights of the Beatles <laughs> and their awful. song, it's a nightmare. I mean, someone, thank God no one's written a book about that. I won't read it. But, uh, you know, it would be 2,000 pages even from the time back when they floated their songs on the market and Who yeah. Great and all these things. So that's one thing I learned. Um the other thing I learned is, you know, if if you keep listening and listening and listening, it doesn't matter. You know, when I was a kid, I must have heard these songs thousands of times, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you just keep listening and keep listening, you will always hear something new. Yep. You know, it, it never really stops or you'll just sort of evolve and you'll notice things that you wouldn't have before. You know, we, we have our ears are almost like our eyes in that we could sort of We can sort of focus on things as we're looking at things. Well, when you're listening to a piece of music, your your internal mind's eye ear, you know, I can listen to the bass and just, I want to just see that part of it. Or I'll listen to the chords. Or you can listen to a different part. And some people develop skills where they're, of course, listening to, you know, I want to hear the bass and and the drums and Mm -hmm. sort of filter the other things out. So that's just the type of skill that you can never really get enough of it's sort of a bottomless pit you know and uh you know i can't i can't do a lot of things i think a lot of really smart uh, musicology type people with great ears or people that do production and studios they have just amazing ears mm-hmm. to, you know that they can hear things like that so that, that that was a big surprise and then as i said before just noticing the amount of contrast and then uh, I wanted to sort of look that up and so I started to listen to all the Mersey beat, uh, the yeah. Liverpool bands that came out when the Beatles uh, did. And you can hear some overlap. You can hear a lot of sparkly guitar stuff and you hear a lot of sort of pop things and there's there's some crazy chord progressions, but once again, the Beatles just sort of stand out because the the Mersey invasion, if you will, was, was somewhat short-lived and it's interesting that Jerry and the Pacemakers actually had a number one in the UK before before the Beatles did.
0: <laughs> yeah, with a the song that they didn't didn't want to record in the first place.
1: Right, you know, yeah, yeah they, they they thought they'd get beat up in Liverpool. Yeah. It you know. <laughs> <laughs> so and and so you know that's surprising. And so I listen and listen to that, and then once again you hear that the Beatles are they just stand out right about the time. You know, the Mersey beat sort of fade was fading. The British invasion was in full force. Mm -hmm. And then that happened for a few years. And and in the States, I mean, the majority of the songs that, you know, in the hot 100 or whatever they would have called them back then were British. And it was just amazing. But then that even faded, you know, when the when the transatlantic answer came from, you know, San Francisco Mm -hmm. and all those other bands but the Beatles were constantly just sort of up and around the corner from everybody. They never, they never really stayed still. So that's another thing that that you really notice is, is how much they were just, they were always just sort of ahead of the game and, and sort of, uh, you know, making patterns that maybe other people tried to follow, but they, you know, they never stood still. I wish so much that probably in between their second album in a hard day's night that they had done another album loaded with, you know, loaded with John Lennon doing things like, uh, Mr. Postman and George and Ooh, yeah. Paul harmonizing behind, you know, I just wish there was another album. I wish they had done more of that, but mm-hmm. you know, of course they, they never stood still. No. And then, then another thing I, I noticed, uh, when you really start listening to this notion of contrast, uh, it really harkens back in an archetypal way to just essential white European and black African mixtures of music. And, you know, it sees its its day in, in Motown mm-hmm. and in rock and roll, but it, it, and it goes way back. And so, you know, they say that Liverpool people were influenced by all the transatlantic ships and the Titanic and all that stuff and hearing records and You know, so they picked up so much of that stuff, and they were so influenced by a lot of the black blues, and then Motown and Smokey Robinson and all that stuff. So, um, when you really study that, then you're looking back in history for all these mixtures, and some of it's you know not so pretty historically. You know, minstrel shows and things like that. I mean, if you look at ragtime, what an incredible mixture of you know of white uh, European classical themes or John Sousa marches with this really funky you know <laughs> syncopation that mm-hmm. came from you know black american it's just a, it's an amazing mixture and so th- these were other discoveries if you really look back at all these things all these songs and dance you know the black and white mixture in, in america uh, you know gumbo and jazz yeah. and, i mean american music you know popular song and dance is really you know chocolate milk as i call it in the books. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and uh, so I would highly recommend taking a look at the book because you can hear about all these things in much more detail. uh, And it's just a very unique approach to uh, analyzing the music that sheds light on a lot of different things instead of just only looking at the chords or looking at specific musical aspects. You've brought in a lot of... Uh, other angles and I think a lot of interesting perspectives so uh, how can we get your book or what what would be the easiest way to get it Uh, you also mentioned that you before we were uh, on recording here you mentioned that you appeared at the New York Fest for Beatle fans so if you could tell us uh, how to get your book and then also any upcoming appearances where people might be able to engage with you
1: Right. So, so thanks. So the best way to find it is just go on Amazon or it's on Barnes and Noble or any, you know, it's on a million different sites. Uh, so that's the easiest way to get it. And yes, I've been, you know, uh, I, I went to this uh, 2019 the New York Metro uh, fest for beatles fans a wonderful opportunity I mm-hmm. got to meet some other authors and sit on some musicology panels and what's a great thing about that is they're starting to have more um things like musicology and, and things like that um and they're, they're trying to do a bit more of that so at the next one in chicago which is august uh, i believe it's just in the first part of august mm-hmm. you know i'll be out there as well and i'll be uh teaching one or two, uh, making one or two presentations, say, an hour long and sort of ranting and raving about all these little <laughs> things. And I'll have some instruments and I, I teach people just enough music theory, you know, to, to be dangerous. Yes. But I also, I'll also call out things like we'll do a major scale. And then I'll talk about how in hello goodbye, you know, Paul McCartney goes, Hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye. Mm-hmm. Dorramy Faso Tito, do, or or things like that or octave jumps in in Eleanor Rigby. You know, I've got these silly instruments I bring with me. And then I, you know, I'll tell people about the chord palettes and show them the colors and and just sort of demystify, you know, essentially if you just want to learn about chords, you know, like I said, it's just really a stack of three notes and it's easy to do on a piano. So so I'll be out there and I'll be doing, you know, a few more things like that and probably eventually uh, an online class where I focus, you know, a a little bit more uh, music and a a little bit more uh, coverage of more songs. And then, you know, and I, and I play a lot of music out as well, so I'll be doing that. And I, who knows, I might write another Beatles book and <laughs> with 212 chord palettes. I'm just not sure yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's plenty plenty more to mine, I'm sure. So. It sure is. <laughs> well, the book is called Blue Notes and Sad Chords, Color-Coded Harmony in the Beatles' 27 Number 1 Hits. And the author is Brian Hebert. And uh, I wanted to, as we always do, a traditional way to close our uh, interviews is I like to have our guests pick a final song to go out with. And you picked I Feel Fine, which you talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, so what's the big draw in
1: I Feel Fine for you? So I Feel Fine is, is a bit like A Hard Day's Night. Um, it's a classic uh, blue notes and sad chords. It opens with a wonderful riff that John Lennon played those descending uh, chords, you know, that's how I first learned the grand bar chord, yeah. trying to figure out that stuff, and then, you know, it's got a wonderful sort of rocky, bluesy verse, and, and John's singing away, and then in the uh, in the bridge, they come in, and there's just beautiful, high-energy, three-part harmony, and these descending, you know, fairly emotional passages, so once again, like A Hard Day's Night, it's a poster child for the whole notion of blue notes and sad chords, and, and for the things that, that really you know really exemplify what beatlemania was all about it's it's really an essential song.
0: Yes, and one of my favorites too. So, great way to go out. So, thanks again Brian for joining me today. Hey, thank you David. It's it was wonderful to talk with you. Excellent. And we'll uh, be back again soon with a new episode with Chris and in the meantime enjoy I feel fine. <laughs>
2: To me, you know she's happy as can be You know she said so I'm in love with her and I feel fine Baby said she's mine You know she tells me all the time You know she said so